0: Okay, all right, brothers and sisters. Praise be to our loving Abba that we are gathered once again to study His words. Welcome to another episode of the BQ Eight, and today we're going to talk about well, many things and many different um, questions that are going to be analyzed and answered using the Holy Bible. Um, the topic is is torment in the lake of fire everlasting. We're going to discuss that later on, but the first question we're going to deal with is the one sent in by one of our, our viewers. Hi, for Brother John, my niece is getting married in the registry. Uh, she is not a member of this particular church, but her mother is an active member of that church. Her mother has been told by their church administration that she cannot attend her wedding because it is against the law of God. Is this kind of prohibition biblical Pope, I've never heard of a law of God that speaks or that tells us that we cannot allow our mother to attend uh, the wedding. As a matter of fact, we believe this is against the will and law of Yahuwah Abba. What's the proof? Let's go ahead and read the book of Mark 7 8 to 9. You have stopped following the commands of God and you follow only human teachings. Then Yahushua said to them, You cleverly ignore the commands of God so you can follow your own teaching. So, this prohibition of a mother who doesn't have the same faith as this church does. From attending the wedding, is this a law of God? No, it's not a command of God, it's what we consider or call a human teaching. And we're not surprised that there are people who enforce human teaching at the expense of the command of God, because this was happening even during the days of our King Yahusha. Our King Yahusha said there is a group, a religious group during his time here on earth who stopped following the commands of God and follow only human teachers or human teachings. They even cleverly do that. And so how do they do that? What's an example of a command of God that they stop following? And instead of following the command of God, what they enforce in fact are human teachings or human rules. Let's read uh, seven, this time 10 to 12, we read eight to nine, Let's read this time what it says in 10 down to 12. Moses said, honor your father and your mother. And anyone who says cruel things to his father or mother must be put to death. But you say a person can tell his father or mother, I have something I could use to help you. But it is korban, a gift to God. You no longer let that person use that money for his father or his mother. What's an example of a command of God? That was bypassed, rendered useless, or null and void because of human rules or human teachings. We have here the command of God, Yahushua spoke about, which is, which is honor your father and your mother. Is this indeed a command of God? Yeah. In fact, it's one of the Ten Commandments, right? And so in the Ten Commandments of God, what does Moses teach us? Moses says, honor your father and your mother. So Yahushua is telling us this is a clear commandment of God that we ought to follow. We must observe this command of God. However, they added a human teaching, a human rule. What is this human rule or human teaching that they added? It is the teaching of Bun. What is this all about? It says a person can tell his father or mother, I have something I could use to help you, but it is Corban, a gift to God. And so I cannot give you what I intended to give you. And so because of this human teaching called Corban, because it's not based upon the commandments of God, it was never taught by Moses, it was not one of the Ten Commandments but they invented it, they came up with it. It's a human rule, a human tradition, a human teaching. But in following this human teaching, they violate the command of God to honor your father and mother. What was one way that you honor father and mother? By helping them financially in their time of need. But this religious group figured out a clever way to bypass this command of God by inventing the teaching called korban, If you dedicate what you were gonna give to your parents to God, then you don't have to give it to them. And so Yahushua, when he saw this taking place, he said, you are making null and void the law of Yahuwah Abba because of your human rules and traditions. This is why Yahushua said and warned us, Mark 7 to 13, by your own rules, which you teach people, you are rejecting what God said, and you do many things like that. And so to answer the question, is it the law of God to prevent parents from attending a wedding simply because the mother does not have the same faith as the church that is conducting the wedding? What is the answer? No, because if they truly believe in the law of God, they would let that parent attend the wedding because it is an expression of respecting and honoring your father and mother. And so when you say to the person, the daughter who's getting married, well, your mother cannot attend the wedding because she doesn't have the same faith as we do. If you say that to the daughter and you say it's a law of God, what are you making this daughter do? In the name of God, you're making this daughter disrespect or dishonor his or her parents. And so because of your human rules, and your human teachings, you are making this person reject what God has said. And so if there are religions like that, it's not the correct religion. It's not a religion that is of God. It is only of man, because what they enforce are not the commandments of God, but the commandments of men. Do not go to that religion, please. Let's go to the next question. Good afternoon, Am from Kenya, Africa, I would like to ask, is it right to pray with lighting candles? First of all, uh, we are so happy to hear from our brother here who is from Kenya, Africa, and his question is about lighting candles uh, during prayer. Now, when we read scripture, there is no explicit biblical passage. that tells us you can use candles or you can't use a candle. It doesn't tell us use it and it doesn't tell us not to use it specifically. However, there are guiding principles that ought to guide us when it comes to proper prayer to our loving Allahim. So what can we do? Uh, What does the Bible teach us when it comes to prayer? And in relation to the question, does it mean that when we light a candle, does it in fact enhance the efficacy of Prayer. I'm trying to grasp the intent or purpose of the question. Okay, because the question is: Is it right to pray with lighting candles? Because I mean, if you live in a room and it's dark, and there's no electricity, and you want to have light, you light a candle. Lighting a candle per se is not wrong, right? I mean, you should right light up a candle because you don't want to stumble and fall and hurt yourself. And so it's practical sometimes to use candles. However, when we use a candle for the purpose of prayer, the question is, what for? If we light a candle for the purpose of enhancing prayer, if we will say to ourselves, I'm going to light this candle because by lighting up this candle it's going to make my prayer more effective, that's the question we really need to ask scripture. Does lighting a candle make our prayers more effective according to the Bible? Let's go ahead and read what does uh, the Bible teach us so that we can make prayers effective. Let's read Mark 11, 24 to 25. I tell you, you can pray for anything. And if you believe that you've received it, it will be yours. And so according to scriptures, what can we do so that we can enhance the efficacy of prayer? The Bible says when we pray, we need to believe. And so if we want our prayers to be effective, we need to begin with faith. Without faith, we cannot expect that our prayers will be answered. We need to have faith. We need to believe in Yahuwah Abba and Yahusha HaMashiach as we pray to God. What also do we need? When you are praying, first forgive anyone you are holding the grudge against so that your Father in heaven will forgive your sins Two. So one of the things that we can do to enhance our prayer, make it more effective, is to have faith, right? Number two, we need to forgive one another. What else can we do to enhance the efficacy of our prayer? James 5:16 to 18, therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Elijah was a man just like us, he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again, he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. One thing we can say about the prayers of Elijah, they're very powerful, right? They're very effective. We want a faith. We want to have prayers like that. When we pray to Yahuwah Abba, it makes a difference. Powerful and effective prayer. Yes, we know we need to have faith. Yes, we know we need to forgive each other and rectify any possible misunderstandings with each other so that we can have the proper relationships with one another. However, in addition to faith and forgiving one another, what also is powerfully effective when it comes to enhancing prayer, the Bible says we need to become righteous. This is why we need to make sure the way we carry out our life is according to the law of Yahuwah Abba. And so we need to make sure we renew our life, just like the prophet Elijah. What else? The Bible says when we pray, it should not be a prayer of ritual, because sometimes when people pray, it's like a lazy prayer, right? When we pray, it should be earnest, it should come from our hearts and minds. We should pour out our soul in our prayer. When we pour out our soul, and our hearts in prayer. Sometimes we even shed tears because of the way we put our heart into the prayer. That helps a prayer become powerful and effective. So, so far, what we have when it comes to prayer number one, have faith. Number two, forgive each other. Number three, be righteous. Number four, we must pray earnestly or with all of our heart and soul. What also? is a teaching of the holy bible so that our prayers become powerful and effective matthew 7 7 to 8 keep on asking and you will receive what you ask for keep on seeking and you will find keep on knocking and the door will be open to you for everyone who asks receives everyone who seeks finds and to everyone who knocks the door will be open but also can help enhance the efficacy of prayer perseverance What do you mean by perseverance, not giving up? What do we need to keep doing to show to Yahuwah Abba that we are persevering in prayer? We keep asking Him. Not only do we keep asking Him, we keep seeking. We keep knocking. In other words, we rely upon Yahuwah in prayer, but we have to also do our part. That's included in what is called the perseverance of prayer. We do our part and Yahuwah Abba will do His heart and so prayer is never never an excuse for laziness instead prayer if you truly believe in Yahuwah Abba when you pray you will seek and you will do your part to obtain what is needed according to your prayer and what else can we use so that we can enhance our prayer John 14 13 and 14 you can ask for anything in my name and I will do it so that The Son can bring glory to the Father. Yes, ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. So when we pray, we use whose name? The name of Yahushua. And so when we pray, the Bible gives us many things that we can do to enhance prayer, right? Faith, forgiving each other, living a righteous way of life, uh, seeking earnestly, uh, being perseverant. We need to persevere and using the name of our king, Yahusha. So the Bible gives us many things that we do to enhance prayer. However, what is not mentioned in the Bible? Lighting up a candle. Okay. Lighting up a candle per se is not wrong. However, if we think by lighting up a candle, it will enhance our prayer. That's no longer biblical and so the Bible tells us what we can do to enhance prayer let's practice that however the Bible also tells us what we should not do when it comes to prayer what is that Matthew 6 verse 7 and when you pray do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do for they think that they will be heard for their many words and so when it comes to prayer if the Bible teaches The things that we can do to enhance prayer, the Bible also tells us, specifically our King Yahushua, what we must not do because it will hinder prayer, right? What did our King Yahushua say? He says, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do. And so when we pray to Yahuwah, we need to make sure that the practices of the heathen, the pagan, right, we don't carry into our practice of faith when we approach Yahuwah Abba, what is one such practice of the heathen, what is called vain, repetition, right, this is why there are people who sometimes use a prayer bead, they memorize their prayer, and they repeat the prayer, and so that's like incantation, and sometimes when we think of people in the pagan society, or pagan rituals, a lot of it has to do with a lot of repetition, Sometimes uh, they repeat the same phrase again and again, and it's like an incantation where you use words to manipulate objects and elements. Sometimes they even light candles and they use the candle as a meditative tool and in which they repeat the words again and again. This is a heathen practice and it's not, it must not be incorporated when it comes to prayer. What is the, a heathen practice that Apostle Paul warns us about Galatians 4 8 to 9 before you before you Gentiles knew God you were slaves to so-called gods that do not even exist so now that you know God or should I say now that God knows you why do you want to go back again and become slaves once more to the weak and useless spiritual principles of this world so Apostle Paul when he preached to the Gentiles who were practicing pagan principles, heathen principles, what did he say about their practices? He says, don't go back to become slaves one once more to the weak and useless spiritual principles of this world. And so there are spiritual principles of this world at work. And so when we become followers of Yahusha, we need to discern the difference between the spiritual principles of this world, pagan practices, And the teachings of our king, Yahusha, what are examples of pagan spiritual principles? Colossians 2 verse 8, don't let anyone capture you with empty philosophies and high-sounding nonsense that come from human thinking and from the spiritual powers of this world rather than from Christ. So any spiritual practices in this world that is the product of human thinking and philosophies that is different from our King Yahusha, we need to reject. Because nowadays there are many people who use crystals, right? They use tarot cards. They even use candles. This is why we have to be careful. When you use a candle, what is the purpose? Is it to light up the room so that you can be, you can see yourself and you can see other people? There's, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with it. But if we believe the candle somehow, somehow is able to enhance prayer, that's no longer of scripture. Because there are many, many uses and misuses of candles nowadays. For example, uh, we want to show you an introduction to candle magic. Yeah. There's like a, it's called Wicca, W-I-C-C-A. There's a whole field and a whole practice involve that involve candles. Candle magic is one of the simplest forms of spell casting. And as such, it doesn't require a lot of fancy ritual or ceremonial tools. In other words, anyone can anyone with a candle can cast a spell. And so there are pagan or heathen practices that make use of the candle to cast the spell to manipulate reality. That's magic. That's not prayer. Prayer is from who? Yahusha. And so when we incorporate candles, which is according to the purpose of pagan beliefs, where you using your words are able to manipulate reality, that's no longer of Yahusha. That's something we must not incorporate in our spiritual practice. So if we want to be focused in our prayer Instead of using a candle, what should be the basis of our focus? Hebrews 12, verse 2, we do this by keeping our eyes on Yahusha, the champion, who initiates and perfects our faith. Because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame. Now he is seated in the place of honor beside God's throne. And so if you want to be focused, instead of using a candle, it is better to keep our eyes fixed on who? Yahusha. In other words, we meditate on the sacrifice, the joy, the teachings of our King Yahusha as we pray to Yahuwah Abba. Okay? All right, let's go to our next question. Shalom, Shalom. <laughs> love that. My beloved brothers and sisters. Number one, uh, our brother John here, oh, I forgot to cross out the name, oh boy. Anyways, there's a lot of Johns in the world, right? Uh, who circumcised Abraham? Number two? The uh, the non-believers will be tormented in the lake of fire everlasting. Please help me to understand, John. Let's go ahead and discuss question number one. Who circumcised Abraham? That's a very interesting question. So let's go to 17 of Genesis. Genesis 17, 10 to 11. This is the covenant that you and your descendants must keep. Each male among you must be circumcised. You must cut off the flesh of your foreskin as a sign of the covenant between me and you. And so one day, Yahuwah tells Abraham, as a sign of the covenant, this is what needs to happen. Yahuwah tells him, uh, each male among you must be circumcised. So who circumcised Abraham? Well, the Bible says you must cut off the flesh of your foreskin. So based on this translation, it appears that Abraham cut his own Skin. However, if you look at the passage, it also says each male among you must be circumcised. One other possibility is that they can each circumcise each other, right? Because when this command was given, there were also other male members of the community. Of course, Yahuwah is going to teach them how circumcision is to be Done, and of course, they would be guided by Yahuwah. I mean, if Yahuwah is speaking to Abraham and giving him the instruction, it logically makes sense if Yahuwah is going to give them the knowledge and the know how and the skill to be able to get it done. It may not be as smooth initially, but like with all learning uh, projects, we it becomes better and better, easier and easier, and so we believe. Uh, Abraham was instructed uh, to circumcise, first himself, as guided by Yahuwah, and then he circumcised the others, okay? After this, what was instructed, Genesis 17, 12, from generation to generation, every male child must be circumcised on the eighth day after his birth. And so not only did Yahuwah God say to Abraham that he must circumcise the male members of the community, He also adds the instruction uh, that when a child is born, when should they be circumcised? On the eighth day. It turns out of all the days, in the thousands of days allotted to a human life, it's the eighth day, which is the best possible day to receive circumcision. Not when you're a teenager, not when you're an adult not when you are 10 days old or 11 days old or seven days old, but specifically, according to medical science, today it is the eighth day that is the best possible day to minimize harm for a person to receive circumcision. Where do you think Abraham got this knowledge from? Yahuwah. And so Yahuwah gives him this knowledge. It makes it easy to understand that Yahuwah also gave them how circumcision is to be done. So the point is Yahuwah who gave them the instruction, told them how to carry out the instruction. So to answer the question, who circumcised Abraham? He circumcised himself, right? Or maybe he had the assistance of the other male communities if that would be a difficult thing to do. Let's go to the next question. The non-believers will be uh, tormented in the lake of fire everlasting. And so I'm trying to understand the question um, from and based on what others have asked concerning this topic, the lake of fire. I'm assuming the question he really wants to ask is, is the torment in the lake of fire everlasting, right? Is it everlasting punishment? Uh, in terms of feeling the flames and the pain, okay? And so that's the question I want to ask. And so I want to maybe phrase it this way. When the Bible speaks of life, uh, lake of fire, and it is everlasting punishment, does it mean this person will feel everlasting pain? Or does it mean the punishment is everlasting in terms of after the punishment has been meted out, it can no longer be undone. Okay, so let's go ahead and look at Revelation chapter 20 in the verses 10. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire, brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And so that's what it says, right? When you take a literal approach of this passage when you take when you look at it and re tormented day and night forever and ever what is your conclusion person who's cast into the lake of fire will be conscious right of his torment because how can you be tormented if you're not conscious of your punishment you see what we what we're, what we're trying to say and so if a person is being uh, tormented day and night forever and ever literally when we read the passage literally it could mean that he is experiencing the pain of torment day and night forever and ever okay however um could there be another explanation could there be another point of view well there could be because what we have learned to do as we study the holy bible is to really analyze and to look at the context right and so when we look at revelation 20 verse 10 when there are people who are going to be cast into the lake of fire and brimstone to be tormented day and night forever and ever. What will eventually happen to them? Revelation 20 verse 10. Right. Let's read now verse 14. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And so the Bible says when people are cast into the lake of fire, what will happen to them? They're going to what? Die, because it says second. Death. And so if a person will die, what does that mean? That they are to die in the lake of fire. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, and do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. But rather fear him who was able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Now, in the New Testament, when you read the English word hell. It could either refer to the grave or it can refer to Gehenna, which in the New Testament is the equivalent of the lake of fire in hell. In this instance, Matthew 10, 28 is referring to Gehenna. And according to our Lord Yahushua, when a person is in hell, what happens to his soul and his body? What does it say? It is destroyed. In other words, it is annulled, abolished. As if he was nothing. And so when a person is dead in the lake of fire, his body and soul is destroyed. And when you are dead, Ecclesiastes 9 verse 5 says, for the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. So the question is, if a person is cast in the lake of fire and is being tormented, eventually, He or she is going to die. When a person is dead, does he or she know anything? Can a person who's dead feel any pain? Can a person who's dead understand conversations taking place? Of course not, because the Bible says a dead know nothing, right? Well, why then does the Bible say everlasting to everlasting, they are going to be tormented? This is why there are people uh, who believe that people will have consciousness of this and they say like what will be put to death is not the person. What will, be put, what will be put to death is their freedom, right? But wait a minute, is that what the Bible says? I mean, does the Bible say in Revelation chapter 20 that in the second death of freedom is to be put to death? No, it says what will be put to, the, to death is the person. And Yahushua is confirming that that includes the body and the soul. It doesn't say their freedom. It says their body and their soul. Then why does the Bible say that they will be tormented day and night forever and ever? Let's read Mark 9, 48. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter into life maimed rather than having two hands to go to hell into the fire that shall never be quenched, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame rather than having two feet uh, to be cast into hell, into the fire that shall never be quenched, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hellfire where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And so when the Bible says they will be tormented day and night forever and ever, what could it possibly refer to? Here in this passage uh, of our King Yahusha teaching about sin, do you notice what he quotes three times? What does he say about hell? He says, the worm, he says about hell, the fire that shall never be quenched, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched, right? The worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. The worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Three times he mentions that quote. Does it mean in the lake of fire there's going to be worms that will not die, does that mean that going to be actual worms that will not die? What is that referring to? Worms that do, not, that do not die in the fire is not quenched. Well, our King Yahushua was actually quoting an Old Testament passage in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 66, verse 24. Take note. Isaiah 66 speaks about the new kingdom, the kingdom of Yahuwah God, Right. And so we know Yahweh's kingdom is going to be brought here on earth and eventually it's going to transition into an eternal kingdom when the heavens and the earth pass away. When will that happen? The heavens and the earth pass away. When the judgment, the final judgment will take place. After the final judgment will take place, there's going to be a passing of the heavens and the earth and a new one will replace it. But before that happens, there's going to be an opening of books, and there are people who will be cast into the lake of fire. Let's read Isaiah 66, verse 24, having that in mind. And they shall go forth and look upon the corpses of the men who have transgressed against me, for their worm does not die, and their fire is not quenched. They shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. What does it mean? that the worm does not die and their fire is not quenched. Well, it speaks of the abhorrence of those who will perish because they transgressed against Yahuwah, Alahim. Notice when it says the worms do not die. Where do you find worms? Worms in this context are found where there's a corpse. This is why the Bible says, they shall go forth and look upon the corpses. And so these people are no longer alive. They are dead because worms only feed on those who are dead. Yahusha's is telling us when it comes to his eternal punishment, what is eternal is the fire. But the person is going to die. He's going to become a corpse. He's going to be completely destroyed, body and soul. And so, when we look at Revelation 20, 10 and 14, the devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then, death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And so, when we look at this passage, and we ask ourselves what is meant by tormented day and night forever and ever. Is that literal or is it metaphorical? Well, we have to look at the context. Look at verse 14. You notice it says, Death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. Is death a person? Is Hades a person? These are concepts, concepts. And so when we look at the phrase tormented day and night, forever and ever, perhaps it is referring not to the person who is being tormented consciously, but it represents the finality of their condemnation. In other words, once they're gone, they cannot be restored anymore. In other words, their judgment is eternal. So what is eternal is the judgment. Which means they're going to die, but after they die, eventually, you know, once they die, then they no longer are aware of any torments. You understand? Because what is put to death is the body and the soul. And so uh, staying with this idea of tormenting day and night forever and ever, referring to the finality of the judgment, Let's go to Revelation 14, 10 to 11. He himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented, right, with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the land. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever. And they have no rest day or night who worship the beast and his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. And so according to uh, the Holy Scriptures, according to Apostle John, right, he's the one who wrote Revelation chapter 20. He's writing here in the book of Revelation 14, and he's clarifying for us, uh, tormented with fire and brimstone. The Bible says what is forever and ever is the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever. Again, we are looking at an image created here in symbolism. Because when you think of drinking of the wine of the wrath of God, isn't that symbolic, right? The smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever. Isn't that symbolic? And so perhaps the flames, the fire itself, it will be forever. But the torment experienced consciously will come to an end because the person is going to die. When this person is cast into the lake of fire. What will be his experience? Torment. Will he feel pain? Yeah. Is he going to have gnashing of teeth? Yeah. Is he going to have weeping? Yeah. But eventually he's going to die. When is he going to die? How long is he going to be in torment? We don't know. Perhaps it depends on the sin that was inflicted. Because remember, Yahuwah is a just God, right? And so when a person is committed a crime they must be punished according to their crime that's what justice is and so when you think about it if a person let's say the vilest person you can think of the vilest person maybe Hitler let's say Hitler killed and tortured so many people for all of his life how many years did he live 80 years nine years let's say 120 years so it's 120 years of torturing other people is the proper justice for him everlasting punishment it doesn't seem like it's justice justice fits the crime right mm-hmm. justice fits what he did and so if you look at it in terms of that the torment that this person who's being punished in the in the lake of fire that will that he or she will experience be according to his Or for her sin. But eventually, you're going to die. And if you're dead, what does that mean? No more consciousness. How can you be dead and you still have consciousness? That would contradict the teaching of the Holy Bible. Again, uh, we're not being dogmatic about this. There may be people who are pro-everlasting condemnation with feeling pain for the rest of their life, right? We're not being dogmatic about this. I could certainly be wrong, you know, but it's a possibility, okay? And so whatever it means to be tormented with fire and brimstone, we don't want to be there, right? That's the bottom line. It doesn't matter how you interpret or explain it now. It doesn't matter. What matters is we want to keep away from it, right? And so if you think uh, tormented forever and ever means being conscious of your punishment forever, then believe it, okay? The point is we want to avoid it. It doesn't matter how Yahuwah Abba will carry out his punishment. We want to avoid that wrath of Yahuwah Abba. So how can we do that? We read 10 to 11, 12 to 13 tells us how we can avoid it altogether. This is what it says. Uh, here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Yahusha. Then I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works follow them. So how can we avoid the wrath of Yahuwah Abba, avoid hell, avoid the lake of fire in the first place? Bible says we need to have a blessed death. How can we have a blessed death? The Bible says we have to die in Yahusha. So we need to belong to Yahusha, right? Before we die. Or we need to belong to Yahusha before Yahusha comes to earth. And so how can we remain in Yahusha? By keeping the commandments of God and having faith in Yahusha. This is why that's the important part. It's not about debating and then causing division about, okay, is this person going to suffer everlasting torment consciously? Or does everlasting torment mean the condemnation is forever? Meaning, once he's... Uh, punished, it can no longer be undone. So if you have conflicts about that, don't bother about that. The important part is this. This is the important part. Belonging to Yahusha and keeping the commandments of God and having faith in Yahusha. Okay? All right, let's go to our next question uh, in Tagalog. Hi po, Kajan. Sabi po ng isang kapatid attached, ay dapat daw pong anin na araw ang pagtatrabaho. Para daw, para daw po masunod ang tumugma sa utos ni Yahuwah Abba na anim na araw magtatrabaho at ang ikapitong araw ang sabat. Ano po ang maisasagot ninyo sa ganitong argumento? Maraming salamat po. Para so I'm going to translate it in English. According to a brother attached. Of course, we're not going to mention the name of the brother. According to a brother attached. Working for six days is needed to satisfy precisely the command of your and that we must work for six days and rest on the Sabbath. What can you tell us about this argument? Thank you. And so the, I'm trying to capture the essence of the question. The question seems to be this. I could be wrong. I could be misinterpreting it. But according to what I'm reading, it is, it is this, that for you to be able to fulfill the teaching of the Sabbath, you have to first work six days. Right? If you don't work six days, then you cannot observe the Sabbath. And so, what can we say about that? Well, what does it mean to practice the Sabbath? Is it dependent on what you do in the first six days? Well, let's go ahead and read the book of Leviticus 23, verse 3 for six days' work may be done, but on the seventh day, there is a Sabbath of complete rest, a holy convocation. You shall not do any work. It is a Sabbath to Yahuwah in all your dwellings. Observing the Sabbath, does it mean we need to first work six days? No, it's not a requirement. Even if we do not work the first six days, we can still observe the Sabbath by observing the rest that is taught by the Holy Bible. And so it's not dependent on what you do in the previous six days. Because what is, the, what is dependent upon the observance of the Sabbath is the actual seventh day, okay? So if it's the seventh day, regardless of what you did in the previous days, you have to observe the Sabbath. And so you cannot say, well, I rested six days, right? And so if I rest still in seventh day, well, I'm no longer observing the Sabbath. No, the observance of the Sabbath does not depend on what you do the previous six days. It depends on the actual day of The Sabbath, observe the Sabbath by having complete rest and making it holy. Having said that, okay, having said that, what also is the message of Yahuwah in giving us his command about the Sabbath? Let's read the book of Exodus 28 to 11. Remember to observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. You have six days each week for your ordinary work. And so, what Yahuwah is telling us, you have six weeks, you have six days to do whatever work you have to do. And so, if you have work to do, do it within those six days. So that when it comes to the seventh day, what are you to do? Verse 10. But the seventh day is a Sabbath day of rest dedicated to Yahuwah, your God. And so what Yahuwah is telling us is that we should work hard. And so Yahuwah tells us. We should work hard, but if we're going to work, for example, we are working for a living, right? Then we have six days to do what we need to do in the week. If we can do it in just four days, good. Just make sure you do it within the six days because the seventh has to be a day out, complete rest, dedicated to Yahuwah, your God. On that day, no one in your household may do any work. This includes you, your sons and daughters, your male and female servants, your livestock, and any foreigners living among you. For in six days, Yahuwah made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and everything in them. But on the seventh day, he rested. That is why Yahuwah blessed the Sabbath day and set it apart as holy. So according to scriptures, when it comes to the Sabbath day... It is not necessary for you to work the whole six days. Is it good to work? Yes. This is why Jehovah God gave us his pattern. Work six days, rest on the Sabbath. Yehudah was telling us not just to have rest, but also to work hard. Because Jehovah God does not want lazy people. He wants us to work. We were built to work. Yehudah God created Adam. And what did he say uh, to Adam? You need to work. What was his work? It was to name the animals. He was to tend the garden. He was to work. We were built to work, okay? And so Yahuwah God wants us to follow this pattern. Six days of work and one day of rest. Do you have to have an actual job to work? No. You can have chores around the house. You can be studying and be going to college. That is considered ordinary work. And so if you don't have a job, it doesn't mean you cannot observe The Sabbath, the Bible says on the seventh day, have rest and dedicate yourself to Yahuwah Abba. Okay, all right, let's go to our last question, which was the question that was left off from last week, which we promised we would discuss today. Uh, What could be the reason why Yahuwah allowed some of the doctrines of our previous religion misinterpreted the verses such as the doctrine in block? voting okay so you know when i look at this question and it's related basically to questions that are asked by many members of the assembly today right because today we are doing things we are believing things that were not believed and preached by brother felix Manal. am i right not preached by brother G. Manal. am i right right for example today uh, we call upon the names of God and Christ. It was never taught by Brother Felix Manalo, right? We're observing the Sabbath. Brother Felix Manalo did not teach that. We observed the feast. Brother Felix Manalo never taught that. We obeyed the Ten Commandments. It was not practiced by the INC, right? When we were still members of the INC. And so today in the Assembly of Yahusha, we're practicing certain truths um, that were not implemented or perhaps even misinterpreted during the days of Brother Felix Manalo and Brother Iran Najeeh Manalo. Not only that, today we uh, don't believe uh, that Yahuwah and Yahusha commanded us to build a house of worship. The passages used to teach that is correctly interpreted. Okay? Does it mean it's wrong to build a house of worship? No, but it's not a commandment of Yahuwah God. To preach it as a commandment is wrong It's a sort of misinterpretation of passage. We don't practice block voting, uh, we don't believe that the who of God intends to have one executive minister who will act like the Holy Spirit. Okay, and we don't believe that Matthew 18 18 refers to the registry, whatever you bind on earth, whatever you lose on earth, you lose in heaven. That's not the registry and the book of life in heaven. We don't believe that, and so when we look at these teachings that we are believing in today and compare it to what was believed in before, during the days of Brother Felix Manala, Brother Iran Manala, one might say, then does that mean that during the days of Brother Felix Manala and Brother Iran Manala, the people back then, they were not truly the people of God, right? And so the, so the question is asked, before we answer that, the question first is asked, how is it possible? What could be the reason? What could be the reason why Yehuah Abba allowed misinterpretation of some verses like block voting why well first of all i don't know why but here could this could be one possible reason i believe this is really the reason Jer- uh, jeremiah 17 5 and 7 this is what yahuwah says cursed are those who put their trust in mere humans who rely on human strength and turn their hearts away from yahuwah but blessed are those who trust in yahuwah and have made yahuwah their hope and Confidence, brothers and sisters. What could be the possible reason why will allowed for certain passages to be misinterpreted by our spiritual leaders in the past? It could be because Yahweh God does not want us to place our trust in mere humans. What is our belief concerning Brother Felix Manalo, Brother Irani Manal? They cannot make mistakes. They cannot make any errors. Because if that is our belief, then in a sense, we're placing our trust in Brother Felix Manalo, placing our trust in Brother Irani Manalo. We're placing our trust in mere humans. It doesn't mean we're disrespecting, dishonoring Brother Felix Manalo, Brother Irani Manalo. No! We believe in what they are preaching, Right? We know that they were spiritual leaders. We know that Yahuwah God placed them to lead. However, we must not place our trust in them. Because if we place our trust in humans, if we will do whatever they tell us to do without really looking into it, then we are showing that we place our trust in human beings instead of Yahuwah. So how can we show that we place our trust in Yahuwah and Yahushua instead of mere humans who lead us here on earth by studying scripture for ourselves. You get that? Because when we set scriptures aside and we believe everything that a person or spiritual leader tells us without checking the scriptures, if we put that to the side, in a way we are placing our trust in mere humans, not in Yahuwah, Abba, And so I believe this happened to teach us, to remind us, don't place your trust in a human being. Why? Because human beings make mistakes. I make mistakes. And I probably will make more and more mistakes. Don't place your trust in me. I'm teaching you, but I'm also telling you, study it for yourself. Look at it. I'm showing you, go to Blue Letter Bible, check the Greek and the Hebrew. And along the way, we correct each other. That's the purpose of belonging to the body so that we can correct each other. The Bible's complete. And so we need to rely on the Bible because the Bible doesn't make mistakes. We need to rely on Yahuwah and Yahusha because they don't make mistakes. But human beings, like Brother Felix Manala, Brother Ivan Manala, they make mistakes. And so we must be reminded to always check, to always test everything being preached to us, including what I'm preaching to you today. Test it, like what I told you today, right, about the lake of fire. Test that. Test that. I'm not telling you believe me. Test it for yourself. And so we're saying to you, brethren, place your trust not in a human being, no matter who that spiritual leader may be. Place your trust in Yahuwah, Abba. And so once we develop this faith and trust in Yahuwah, Abba, is it possible? Is it possible? For the people of God who are guided by appointed leaders and prophets to still fail to understand all of God's laws and teachings. Because some might ask if Brother Felix Manalo, Brother Irani Manalo during their time did not observe the Sabbath and did not call upon the name of Yahuwah, does that mean they're no longer the people of God? No. Why? Because it's possible for the people of God as a whole to, call, to fail in understanding the totality of God's laws and teachings. And we will look at that today before we go ahead and wrap up. 2 Kings 22, 1-2. Josiah was 8 years old when he became king. It's a young king. <laughs> right? He's a young king. A- anyone here have an 8-year-old in the house? Can you imagine that person being king? That's a young king. Josiah was 8 years old when he became king. And he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jedidah, the daughter of Ad- Adiah, Bozkath. And he did what was right in the sight of Yahuwah and walked in all the ways of his father David. He did not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. And so here we have a king, a very young king, but his name, his name is Josiah. And so he belonged to Judah. At this time, was Judah still the people of God? What is your answer? Yeah, they were still the people of God. Josiah was the king. Josiah had advisors, including the high priest, including the prophets, right? And so Hosiah and the, even the kings before him, they were guided by Yahuwah Abba, because Yahuwah God placed leaders to give them direction. Josiah, Hosea, King Josiah, where was he in the timeline of the kingdom of Judah in Israel? We know Saul, David, and Solomon ruled uh, Israel as a whole, right? 40 years Saul, followed by David, who reigned for 40 years, and Solomon reigned for 40 years. After Solomon died, Rehoboam and Jeroboam split the two kingdoms, Judah and Israel. The date when Israel passed from a united to a divided monarchy was 931 BC. I just want you to see the timeline of where King Josiah fits, where he's, where he was at in the timeline of the kings. So after the split, you have the kingdom of Israel. Look at all those kings that served as the leader of the people of God in Israel. That's a lot of kings. And they were guided by prophets. During, their, during the time they were kings. Kingdom of Judah. Right? And they were guided by prophets. During the kingdom of Judah. Now take a look at where Josiah is. He's right there. So he's towards the end. Of the end of the kingdom. Right? Because after Josiah. From 640 to 609 in 586, what happens to the kingdom of Judah? They become captives. Okay, And so this king ruled over Judah at the time when Yahuwah was already filled up to the brim because of the atrocities and the offenses that his people did against him. What happened during the reign of Josiah? Let's read 22, to 5. In the 18th year of his reign, King Josiah uh, sent Shaphan, son of Azaliah, and grandson of Meshulam, the court secretary, to the temple of Yahuwah. He told him, go to Hilkiah, the high priest, and have him count the money the gatekeepers have collected from the people at Yahuwah's temple. Entrust this money to the men assigned to supervise the temple's restoration. Then they can use it to pay workers to repair the temple of Yahuwah. And so when Josiah became king, the Bible says he was careful to obey God, right? He was careful to walk according to the right ways. Not to the left, not to the right, but the right way. He was careful to do that. This is why when he became king, what did he want to do? He wanted to restore Israel. He wanted to to restore Judah. Beginning with what? The temple. He wanted the temple to be restored in the process of restoring the temple because right now brothers and sisters who's the temple of Yahuwah God who's the temple nowadays that's us Yahuwah God right now is in the process of restoring us as a people right and so we can learn a lot from what happened here and so the temple is to be restored led by King Josiah so while they were restoring the temple what happened what did they uncover what did they discover Let's keep reading 8 to 10. Uh, Hilkiah, the high priest, said to Shaphan, the court secretary, I have found the book of the law in Yahuwah's temple. Then Hilkiah gave the scroll to Shaphan and he read it. Shaphan went to the king and reported, Your officials have turned away the money, or have turned over the money collected at the temple of Yahuwah to the workers and supervisors at the temple. Shaphan also told the king, Hilkiah, uh, the priest has given me a scroll. So Shapan read it to the king. And so when they were in the process of restoring the physical temple, what did they discover? What does it say? What did they find? The book of the law. Where was it found? In Yahuwah's temple. Look at the passage. Look at this encounter. They were surprised. They were surprised that there is this book of? The law. And so what does that mean? For many hundreds of years, they forgot this book of the law. So all these hundreds of years as a kingdom of Yahuwah God, they were not relying on the book of the law. You know what that was that they found? You know what the book of the law that they found was? Let's go to Deuteronomy 31, 24, 27. After Moses finished writing in a book, the words of this law from beginning to end. He gave this command to the Levites who carry the Ark of the Covenant of Yahuwah. Take this book of the law and place it beside the Ark of the Covenant of Yahuwah your God. There it will remain as a witness against you for I know how rebellious and stiff necked you are. If you have been rebellious against Yahuwah while well, I'm still alive and with you. How much more will you rebel after I die? (laughs) Moses got it right, right? What did did Moses do? He wrote a scroll because back then books were scrolls, right? So he wrote a scroll and this scroll is called the book of the law. And what did he instruct the Levites to do with this scroll, this book of the law? He said to to place it beside the Ark of the Covenant. Take note, he did not say place it inside the Ark of the Covenant. What was inside the Ark of the Covenant? The tablets that had what? The Ten Commandments. And so you can see how special the Ten Commandments were, right? It's so special, it's inside the covenant, okay? And so Moses tells the Levites, place it by the Ark of the Covenant so that this can be used as instructions to be read Always so the people would not fall astray. Because Moses knew that the Hebrew people, his people, were rebellious and stiff-necked. And so when this scroll was given, when this book of the law was given and placed by the Ark of the Covenant, it was forgotten. (laughs) For the longest time, it was forgotten. Until when? Until Josiah sought to restore the temple it was then that they discovered it what did he do when he discovered this law this book of the law let's go back to second kings 22 11 to 13 when the king heard what was written in the book of the law he tore his clothes in despair then he gave these orders to Hilkiah the priest he comes son of Shaphan Atbor son of uh, Micaiah Shaphan the court secretary and Isaiah, the king's personal advisor, go to the temple and speak to Yahuwah for me and for the people and for all Judah. Inquire about the words written in this scroll that has been found. For Yahuwah's great anger is burning against us because our ancestors have not obeyed the words in this scroll. We have not been doing everything it says we must do. And so when they found this book of the covenant, this book of the law, and the king read it. What did the king do? Tore his clothes in despair. You know what he discovered? All these years, hundreds of years, they were not doing everything that the law was saying. Did you notice that? Were they the people of God? Yeah. Could they inquire of God in the temple? Yes. Did they have prophets to teach them and guide them? Yes. Yes. But, until, but up until this time, they did not find the law of God, the book of the law. They did not find the book of the law. And so when the king finally found the book of the law and he opened it and read it, he tore his clothes because he understood they did not follow the book of the law. And so what did he do? He said, go to the temple, inquire of Yahuwah God. Ask Yahuwah God what his message for us is. And so that's what they did. And how did they do that? Second Kings twenty two fourteen. So Hilkiah the priest, Ahikam, Akbor, Shaphan, and Uzziah went to the new court of Jerusalem to consult with the prophet Huldah. He happens, she happens to be a prophetess, a woman prophet. She was the wife of Shalom, uh, son of Tigvah, son of Harhas, the keeper of the temple wardrobe. So when they discover the book of the law, they inquire of Yahuwah, through the prophet Huldah, right? So what does the prophet Huldah do? What message does she receive from Yahuwah Abba? Let's read 2 Kings 22, 15 and 17. She said to them, Yahuwah, the God of Israel has spoken. Go back and tell the man who sent you, this is what Yahuwah says. I'm going to bring disaster on this city and its people. All the words were, all the words written in the scroll that the king of Judah has read will come true for my people have abandoned me and offered sacrifices to pagan gods and I'm very angry with them for everything they have done my anger will burn against this place and it will not be quenched For here's Yahuwah and he's giving a message to Huldah right the prophetess to give to the king and to Judah what was that message Yahuwah says I'm going to bring disaster on this city and the people And so when they discovered the book of the law, it was too late. (laughs) Yahuwah God has already made a decision. They were to be destroyed. Which makes you think, if they were the people of God, why for hundreds of years did the book of law remain hidden? Right? It makes you want to ask, why? Simple answer is, It's really up to us. Do we want, do we really want to trust in Yahuwah? Are we really seeking for Yahuwah? Because if that was the case, we would be looking for it. Right? But they were not looking for it because they couldn't care. They couldn't care care less. They were not interested in knowing about Yahuwah's laws. And so they did not look for it. And when it was found, it was too late. But what else was the message of this prophetess? Second Kings 22, 18 and 20. But go to the king of Judah who sent you to seek Yahuwah and tell him this is what Yahuwah the God of Israel says concerning the message you have just read. You concerning Josiah were sorry and humbled yourself. You were sorry and humbled yourself before Yahuwah when you heard what I said against the city and its people. But this land would be cursed and become desolate. You tore your clothing in despair and wept before me in repentance. And I have indeed heard you, says Yahuwah. So I will not send the promised disaster until after you have died and been buried in peace. You will not see the disaster I'm going to bring on the city. So they took her message back to the king. And so when the message was, uh, what message was Yahuwah's message to King Josiah? Because he showed humility. He showed repentance. Yahuwah God says because you were sorry and humbled and because you tore your clothing and wept before me in repentance. So Yahuwah God notices all that. No, we may not notice that, but Yahuwah God notices not just our outward actions, but also what's in our mind, what's in our heart. And so he saw the heart of uh, Josiah. And so what did he say? He said, you will not see the disaster I'm going to bring on. The city. And so the disaster meant for Judah, it will not take place until after you die. Okay, that's the promise of Yahuwah. And so what did Josiah continue to do? Second uh, Kings 23:12. And, and the king summoned all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem, and the king went up to the temple of Yahuwah with all the people of Judah and Jerusalem, along with the priests and the prophets, all the people from the least to the greatest. There the king read to them the entire book of the covenant that had been found in Yahuwah's temple. What did Josiah do after discovering the book of the law? He read it to the people. After reading it to the people, what else did he do? 23 verse 3, the king took his place of authority beside the pillar and renewed the covenant in Yahuwah's presence. He pledged to obey Yahuwah. By keeping all his commands, laws, and decrees with all his heart and soul. In this way, he confirmed all the terms of the covenant that were written in the scroll. And all the people pledged themselves to the covenant. What else did the king do? King Josiah do? After reading to the people the contents of the book of the law that he found. Bible says he took a pledge to obey it. Not only that, he led the people to make the same pledge to obey, according to the covenant, the laws and decrees of Yahuwah Abba. And after he did this, what also did he do? 23 verse 4, then the king instructed Hilkiah, the high priest, and the priests of the second rank, and the temple gatekeepers to remove, to remove from Yahuwah's temple. All the articles that were used to worship Baal, Asherah, and all the powers of the heavens. The king had all these things burned outside Jerusalem on the terraces of the Kidron Valley, and he carried the ashes away to Bethel after leading a pledge, a commitment to obey the laws of Yahuwah Abba according to the covenant. What also did King Josiah do? The Bible says he got rid of all the idolatry. All these years, the people of Israel were still greatly and deeply into idolatry. And so Yah. Uh, Josiah removed the idolatry that was still present in Judah but not only that not only that what also did he do second Kings King Josiah then issued this order to all the people you must celebrate the Passover to Yahuwah your God as required in this book of the covenant there had not been this is the sad part there had not been a passover celebration like that since the time when the judges ruled in israel nor throughout all the years of the kings of israel and judah this passover was celebrated to yahuwah in jerusalem in the 18th year of king josiah's reign can you imagine that For hundreds of years, the people of God were not living according to the law of God, yet they were still the people of God, right? In Yahuwah's mercy, Yahuwah gave them chance after chance and after chance. So Josiah came to the scene, and when he found the book of the law, what did he do? He introduced reforms. What was the first thing he did? He pledged loyalty complete obedience to the laws of Yahuwah Abba. Number two, he got rid of idolatry. And number three, he went again and fulfilled the feasts of Yahuwah. Here it was the feast of Passover. Isn't this what we're doing also today? Are we not restoring the law of Yahuwah Abba? Are we not practicing the feasts as well? Are we not removing idolatry? What idolatry are we removing? It's the idolatry that teaches people to place their trust in human beings. That's idolatry. The question was, why did the Yahuwah Alba allow certain passages to be misinterpreted to teach us not to rely on religious leaders, but to rely on scriptures, right? Because sometimes when we have a visible leader like a king, what do we do? We rely on the king and we forget the law. Isn't this what happened? For the longest time. The Bible says since the time. When the judges ruled in Israel. That's the time of Samuel. The kings in Israel and Judah. They did not have a Passover like this. It was completely disregarded. That's a long time. right? Why was that? Why did they. Forget the Passover. Why did he forget the law of God? Why, why? What's the possibility? Second Chronicles 35, 18. Never since, the time, never since the time of the prophet Samuel has there been such a Passover. None of the kings had ever kept a Passover as Josiah did. How did Josiah do it? Do it according to the covenant, right? Why? Because he had the book of the law. He followed it. And so none of the kings of Israel had ever kept the Passover as Josiah did, involving all the priests and Levites, all the people of Jerusalem, and people from all over Judah and Israel. Why did they fail to do that? Here's the answer, brothers and sisters. Because the people of Israel placed their trust in their visible king instead of placing their trust in Yahuwah by relying on scriptures. Do you see that? Bible says since the time of Samuel. Do you know what happened after Samuel? What happened after Samuel? What did the people want? What did the people demand from Samuel? Give us what? A king. Give us a king. And after the king was given, they forgot the law. The king will tell us what we need to do. Forget the law. The king will tell us what we need to hear. Forget the law. And so what happened to the book of the law? It got forgotten. Can you imagine? For hundreds of years, it was forgotten to be discovered hundreds of years later. Do you know how long it took? Well, look, the kingdom stood for 120 years. The divided kingdom, 345 years. Josiah initiated reforms in 622 BC. That would be 429 years since the first king, Saul. When the king was installed. People, place, their trust in human leaders. To the point they forgot the law. Brothers and sisters, we see a lot, a lot of parallel today. Sometimes we rely on Brother Felix Manalo, Brother Erdogan Manalo. Wait a minute. How about the Bible? Are we going to throw away the Bible because they are there to teach us? It's good that they were there to teach us. But it doesn't mean we get rid of the Bible. No. We have to look at it. We have to bring that back. And that's what we're doing. This is why we have the Bible History Project. We have to bring back the Bible. We have to bring back the law of Yahuwah Abba, the Ten Commandments of Yahuwah Abba. Does it mean that the people of God during the days of Brother Felix, Manalo, Brother Iradni Manalo are no longer the people of God? They are. It just so happens during that time, they did not yet discover the law. Today, we have discovered the law, right? Yahuwah has opened our eyes. We now know the importance of Sabbath. We now know the importance of the Ten Commandments. We know the importance of the festivals of Yahuwah. And so what must we do? Well, this is what Josiah did. Never before had there been a king like Josiah. and So he has a distinctive honor. Never before has there been a king like Josiah who turned to Yahuwah with all his heart and his soul and strength, obeying all the laws of Moses. And there has never been a king like him since. This is what we need to do as well. Yahuwah Abba has opened our eyes. We now see the importance of the Ten Commandments. The Sabbath. The festivals of Yahuwah. Let's obey that with all of our heart, soul, and strength to show that our trust is not on mere mortals, but to show that our trust and our love is to Yahuwah Abba and to Yahusha HaMashiach. For many years, the law has been regarded as void. But now, because we have received the calling of Yahuwah Abba, what must we do? Let's read the final passage of our studies today, Isaiah 42. I am Yahuwah, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another or my praise to idols. Sing to Yahuwah, one who saw his praise from the ends of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that is in it, you islands and all who live in them, let them give glory to Yahuwah and proclaim his praise in the islands. It pleased Yahuwah for the sake of his righteousness to make his law great and glorious. What we read to you is the beginning of our calling and election. How did our calling and election begin? Through the commissioning of Brother Felix Manalo when he preached the word of God. It started in the Philippine islands back in 1914. Are we a part of that? Yes, are we denying the work of Brother Felix Manalo, the work of Brother Ryan Manalo? No, but we must not deny the work of Jehovah Abba as He continues the work of restoration. Restoration doesn't begin; doesn't happen in an instant. It is progressive. The unfortunate part about the work of restoration initiated. By Josiah was it was too late, Yahuwah God has already set his decree, right? And so they would go to Babylon to be captives during our time. Yahuwah has already given his decree concerning where we came from. The Bible says in Isaiah 1 8 to 9, if it were not for Yahuwah God setting apart a small remnant, we would be like Son men, but Jehovah God set us apart. And because he set us apart, what must we do? We now have to fulfill the purpose of why he set us apart. What is that? To complete the work mentioned here. It started in the islands of the sea in the far east. Back in 1914. That's the start. But we have to complete that work. We have to be instruments in the work of restoration. Do you think it's coincidence? That Jehovah God is opening our eyes concerning the law. No, this is part of his plan, part of his purpose. And so we have to proclaim his name. That's part of what we have to do according to Isaiah 42. Proclaim the name of Yahuwah Arba and to give glory to him and his name. What else? We need to make his law great and glorious. This is why we continue to uphold the Ten Commandments. We observe the Sabbath the best we can. The best way we can. And we observe the festivals the best way that we can. Yahuwah Abba bless us and our work together as we continue in this work of final restoration so that when Yahusha comes, we will say we were able to fulfill this purpose of our calling and our election. Let us stand, brethren, and we shall pray together. Everlasting Abba. Yes. You are truly good and compassionate. Yes, Father. We thank you so much for the calling and election that you have blessed us with. We look at the roots, the humble beginnings of this work of your salvation. We see its progress. We also saw its shortcomings. None of us are perfect. We will make mistakes along the way. Teach us to truly repent. To learn from the mistakes of the past. And to restore your laws, the 10 commandments yes. that our King Yahusha taught, that we can fulfill the purpose of why we have been added into the fold, Amen. that is to make your righteousness shine. Wow. Our loving King Yahusha, yes. thank you so much because we belong to you. Yes. Yes. You are the purpose of the law, yes. it leads us to you. You satisfy the requirements of the law. When we were baptized into your body, now we are free to obey the spirit of the law. Help us to do exactly this. Help us to bear fruits of the spirit. That we may be your instruments in proclaiming the law of our loving Abba. Father, bless your people who are here. Thank you for giving us your message this evening. May you help us to learn more and more as you continue to restore the works of your people. May we not be too late in our response. We know long ago it was too late for us, loving Abba, as much as this is the last work of your salvation, help us that we will be your instruments in proclaiming your righteousness. Ah. Father, be with us in our worship services, especially when we commemorate the festivals. Manifest your presence. Manifest yourself in our hearts to again strengthen and give us hope. Amen. We believe, loving Abba, you have listened to our prayers. Yes, for we ask and beg everything in the name of our Lord and Savior, Yahusha HaMashiach. Amen. Amen.